Welcome to season two of the Price Lab podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we're temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Sylvester Johnson, Assistant Vice Provost for the Humanities at Virginia Tech and founding director of the Virginia Tech Center for the Humanities. He's a professor in the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech and is a scholar of the human condition and the age of artificial intelligence. Editing this interview was a bit of a challenge since Professor Johnson was such a fantastic guest. We simply couldn't bring ourselves to delete much of it, so instead we're releasing this podcast in two parts. I'd just like to hear you talk about your trajectory from Union Theological Seminary to leading a text mining project at Northwestern to your current book project on the place of the human within advanced digital culture. I did do my graduate work at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and that work was focused on contemporary religious thought with particular attention to liberation theology movements, uh, vectors of social power and systemic structures of inequality. The uh, particular concern that I was examining in my dissertation work was the intersection of religion and race and scriptural traditions. Did a project on the legend of Noah uh, that eventually became a book called The Myth of Ham, who was one of the characters in this Noah legend, who was a descendant of Noah. And that was really examining the relationship between these scriptural traditions about uh, people and origins and social power, uh, in that case around slavery. And I looked at the uses of that biblical legend in the context of American religion, uh, particularly during the 1800s, to both to develop these claims around the the system of slavery, but also uh, what became significant with the dissolution of the formal system of slavery, uh, these claims about the origins of races. Where did the white race come from? What was the origin of the black race? Uh, What about indigenous peoples, et cetera? And this Noah legend actually became very useful in, in that way uh, for, for good and ill to make claims about racial origins. That training at Union Seminary was really important in ways that I could both appreciate at the time, but also in other ways I would not foresee at the time, uh, because it was training around a set of traditions and not necessarily a nation state, uh, not necessarily a time period, not the 18th century per se, or the, the period of the Enlightenment. In fact, the way scripture traditions are taught is through, is through empires. And I probably couldn't have told you that was happening at the time, but that's actually how it's done. And, and so that had some implications later. I went on to graduate from Union and I had my first teaching position at Florida A&M University where I had been an undergraduate student. Years earlier, I had studied chemistry there and did a minor in humanities. Uh, but I went back to teach in the department uh, of humanities there with the area of philosophy and religion, and then went on to Indiana University in the Department of Religious Studies there, and uh, later at Northwestern University. And over that time, uh, my work was examining 
African-American religions. It was looking at systems of race and gender, uh, the relationship between those systems and histories of empire. So uh, the structures of colonialism. I uh, eventually did a book called African-American Religions that was focused on the intersection of democracy and uh, colonialism and uh, the implications for understanding religious history. And, and so I've never felt obligated to confine myself to a particular period, mm-hmm. although most of my published work has examined more recent periods of study. But when I was at Northwestern, I got really interested in some 17th century individual named Samuel Perkis, who had written what appears to be the earliest English language texts examining the global forms of race and religion. And not in a critical fashion. There are many ways Samuel Perkis was implicated in the most problematic forms of those histories. But he was also a very inquisitive person who produced a fascinating text that had not been published since the 1600s. And it was in digitizing that uh, that I began to pay attention to technology because we had to create an algorithm to help us correct that text, to correct the errors that occurred when we were scanning, for example, Mm -hmm. and to help us to get it into form And before that, I I didn't know machines could read. I didn't know that they could handle syntactical challenges, Uh, but we were working with these algorithms that could do just that. In fact, we had to create our own. And what started out as a digitization project really became an artificial intelligence project with eventually 20 people on the team that I was leading. And that's what really got me to pay attention to technology as a humanist and not just as a foil, but really trying to understand its own importance for the kinds of superstructures of systems of power, for example, of experiences of social disparity that were already part of my work. And what I quickly realized is that systems of technology are are not only very important for recognizing and understanding how social power functions today, Uh, But it's also urgent that we have some type of broad transdisciplinary inclusion in the people who are going to determine the future of this technology, because that's actually going to have a lot to do with shaping the future of the world that we're going to live in. And that is something that I quickly begin to recognize was a, a humanistic problem. That's interesting. I haven't thought about technology in terms of being part of the superstructure, but of course it is. We can look at code and find within it, you know, the the same sorts of cultural biases we can find in film or in literature. Digital Humanities has spent a lot of energy trying to find ways to incorporate technology training into the humanities in terms of the curriculum. When I think about some of the ethical and political questions that arise from things like AI, I find myself hoping that people are also working on incorporating humanities training into the STEM fields. Given your academic interests and your role as the director of the Center for Humanities at Virginia Tech, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the humanities and STEM can really productively talk to each other. I think that's such a great question because it attends to something that fortunately is happening more frequently now, 
And that is this engagement uh, between humanities and the science, technology, engineering, math, the disciplines that we call STEM for short, Mm -hmm. uh, that are very important, uh, particularly around technology. Uh, So I think there are many ways that that can happen. One of the things that we're doing at Virginia Tech is a university-wide initiative that we're calling Tech for Humanity that is meant to be doubly meaningful, that, that Virginia Tech, as a comprehensive university, should be in service to humanity, and is, uh, but that technology should serve human interest and ultimately be accountable to the kinds of, of issues that are really human problems. And, and that's not meant in an anthropocentric way to say that we should care nothing about the environment or things like that. Right. It's meant to say that technology should not be treated as purely uh, a means of generating profit uh, with no accountability to ethical concerns or to issues of equity and social justice. That's, that's what's meant by the, the humanist approach to it or humanist interpretation. And so one of the outcomes of that initiative uh, is something we've been very excited about recently. The Andrew Mellon Foundation has granted us funding to create an undergraduate minor uh, that we're going to call a Tech for Humanity minor that will position our, our humanists, our humanities faculty, in creating new courses and developing case studies in order to prepare a new generation of talent to study technology in ways that are humanistic, that are human-centered, mm-hmm. to, to recognize that technology is not only about technical systems and technical knowledge, those are very important things, uh, and it, it, but also that it's important to recognize how technology has effects and implications and is very much about economic, political, ethical, cultural uh, and otherwise social issues. There are numerous examples of this today. Uh, One can just look, for example, at the future of work. Uh, There are big questions about the implications of automation on economic equality, uh, particularly for highly vulnerable populations who have already been marginalized in our society. If, If that accelerates due to automation, we have to not just ask a question of what that means for the value of all peoples. Uh, we, we need to make very deliberate decisions about structuring the society. So that, you know, it's not just an abstract question, it's actually a, a very material and urgent set of needs that we have to respond to with deliberate planning and insights. And that means that you have to have humanists who are part of it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the technology is actually creating a, very uh, urgent and generative opportunity for those conversations and collaborations to emerge between humanist and STEM faculty, because we have to prepare the future of talent in a way that is going to give us the skill sets that we need and and provide us the solutions to have uh, consequences of technology that look like things that we were happy with instead of undermining systems that we claim to value. And we see many examples of that today. What you were just saying reminded me of something I was listening to on the radio this morning about sort of now that you know, between working from home and also more kind of gig economy 
type things, the you know, workplace surveillance is getting more and more interesting. Having a sort of a humanistic imagination about that seems like it would be really important. But of course, you know, part of being able to think about that is going to involve at some level, you know, humanists sort of understanding at least basically some of the underlying technology. What's at stake for the humanities in that conversation? And you know, what can we bring to the table, but also what do we need to learn how to do? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think that at a very high level, you know, within our institutions, I think what's at stake is the legibility of the value that humanities holds. Um, that certainly includes what humanists love to talk about as the inherent value of what humanists do. But there's also the utilitarian value, uh, the problem-solving value. And, and one of the things that I like to emphasize as a humanities-centered director is that we should never set those things in a zero-sum game competition with one another. It's, it's not a competition. We, we need not only to uplift and celebrate the inherent value of knowledge, knowledge for knowledge's sake, we also need to uplift and celebrate the importance and the urgency of humanities for addressing the real challenges that we face. And, and that has been an ongoing debate uh, that humanists should be wary of these claims about problem solving or addressing uh, challenges or practical issues. What humanists do is rooted in the inherent value of knowledge and not problem solving. That, that claim that I just echoed rhetorically is a product of a particular history of power and privilege. Right. And it is not an accident that part of the history of articulating the value of humanities has done so in a way that is um, either hostile to or pretends some uninterest or unfriendliness towards solving problems. If when people have problems, uh, particularly overwhelmingly urgent ones, they find it quite important to include addressing those problems uh, in the definition of what we think humanities is and should be doing. And so uh, that's just another reason why I say it's important that we not allow those things to be said in opposition to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's more internally. And then we need to take advantage of this opportunity that I think technology innovation has created to really demonstrate the need more broadly why humanists have to be participating in leadership um, of technology. And I say that because one of the stories I like to tell is that we, as a society, and so not just any particular institutions, but as a society, we were not telling the truth when we said that technology was a STEM issue. You know, that's been taught for a long time, our curricula, at our institutions of learning tend to treat technology that way. Uh, our, our students come to college with parents who are concerned about them getting jobs, and they tend to think that 
Uh, if you're going into technology, which is supposed to be a, a safe route for employment future, that that's just STEM. Uh, and one of the things that we're witnessing now is the uh, growing attention toward what's called big tech. So, you know, who they are, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, <laughs> Microsoft, Netflix, etc. These large companies that have become the object of a lot of public scrutiny and concerns about accountability. And it's actually popular now. This is not always the case, but it's popular now to, to call these companies in the question and, and to point the finger and say, look at what you're doing to democracy. Look at the impact that you're having on our elections. Uh, what, what are you doing with the access that law enforcement officials have to these unregulated technologies, such as facial recognition? And I say, well, sure, that's, that's part of the issue, but it's not enough to point the finger at these tech companies. The people who created these companies were produced by our society. And when they were students in our institutions of learning, we, we would not allow them to be technologists and also study things like democracy mm -hmm. or equity or social justice issues or philosophy or this very complex understanding of vectors of race or sexuality or gender. Mm -hmm. And until we address that issue, we can point as many fingers as we want to tech companies, but we're gonna keep creating the same problem. We're gonna keep telling people to come to our institutions to be technology leaders because that's supposed to be where the money is. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna tell them, don't worry about the humanities over there. We're gonna push them in the STEM where they focus on the math and science and when they go to create these companies or they design the technology and we end up with these problems of the racial and gender bias and algorithms or the user interface or the, the applications that create tremendous social problems. Um, until we take accountability for being comprehensive and recognize that technology was never just a STEM issue, it, it was always a political and economic and cultural and, and, and justice issue. It was always all of those things. Until we do that, mm -hmm. we're never going to solve this problem. Right. And I think what's at stake for humanities is actually being bold enough to say, look, we lied when we said the technology was a STEM issue. So let's stop telling that lie and because what we can now appreciate more easily today than people could in the 1990s or the early 2000s is that technology is a democracy issue. That technology is a, is a gender and racial justice issue. It's right. an economic issue. If we go to digital currency that is controlled by private technology companies, uh, what does that mean for the central banking system? Which is not some kind of perfect system anyhow, but it's, <laughs> but it's a very different kind of enterprise. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do we need to train the future of talent to lead and enhance democratic institutions, for example, or to create the social institutions like our schools or our libraries or our medical establishments? How are we gonna do that in a way that makes it possible for us to live in the world that we actually want to live in instead of one where we are fearing for the erosion of some of the most pivotal institutions that enable democratic outcomes. Like the way we do that is 
to be bold enough to tell the truth about technology and that it's a comprehensive issue. It is. And that technologies, when we say technologies, what we have to mean for the future and the present is not just STEM. It's, it's got to include humanists. And if it doesn't include people who are very good at the kinds of things that humanists are good at, the things that we complain about when we want to point fingers to tech companies, if we don't include them, we're never going to get the kind of world that we actually want to live in. We're going to go step by step and we're going to create these sophisticated systems such as weaponizing AI, where you have military weapon systems that already have the capacity for a machine to identify a potential human target and on its own take out that human target to kill them. That technology, the technology already exists. Now that that uh, taking a human out of the loop is currently considered unconstitutional current today if you check the calendar right now but given the scale of innovation in the capacity for machines to be algorithmic to be pattern recognizers to be problem solvers in the way that we like to think about human thinking given the tremendous strides and the the massive amount of capital that's being spent to further those advancements, we should never comfort ourselves with the assumption that our current norms about what's permissible or what's legal or what's constitution is gonna be the case a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. Uh, so I think that's at a very high level. I think that's what's at stake. It's, will we have a world that we actually wanna live in? Or will we create a society step by step that is the opposite of what we claim we want that is predicated on the most massive form of material inequality and human rights violations. Someone from Google emailed the Price Lab, this is two summers ago, looking for interns. And she basically said, you know, I don't know what digital humanities is, but when I see those two words together, it's like, that's the kind of person we want. And what they really wanted was someone to basically write documentation for software. And I think we initially kind of scoffed at the, at the idea, but then it's like, well, you know, if we sit back and complain about Google and, you know, not doing all the things right that we want them to do, but then don't sort of open up pathways for our students for, you know, the, you know, to go into that sector, then, you know, what are we really doing? You know, how are we actually going to solve this problem? That's a great point. No, you're right. That's I mean, what you just described is one of the things, uh, Stuart, that we have to learn. I mean, you, you asked me, what do, hum do the humanities need to learn in an effort to bring things to the table and to exert what we have to offer? And there, without painting too, with too broad a brush, because uh, there's no single paradigm for humanists, but there is an easy tendency for, for humanities experts to cultivate a type of, um, I think, disengagement from, in, in the name of, of pursuing the higher path of, of right. life, a disengagement from uh, the, the so-called villainous world of <laughs> corporate America or technology design 
you know, I think that we, one thing that we can bring to the table is humanizing technology, just, just providing context. Technology is actually not a new thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of something that humans have been doing for a long time. That doesn't mean it's a romantic thing. Uh, we should always be uh, certainly uh, thoughtful and circumspect in our understanding of these social systems. But technology inherently is not something that's evil. It is something that people do. And the question is, well, what's the politics of it? Who's involved? Are we being inclusive in ensuring that the people who have the most to lose, for example, are participating in the leadership of the design of technology and its applications? Are we training the talent in a way that does what you just said, that actually encourages humanists to move into realms where they can begin to participate in advancing public interest and public good by being part of the institutions that are going to actually create these technologies? So the example that you gave, I think, is is such a wonderful one because this, this will require uh, people, if we can just kind of use the overly simplified binary of humanities and STEM. Of course, there's just lots of stuff going on, but right. if we can just use that as an example, uh, there certainly needs to be things, there's learning from people who in STEM who were probably used to thinking of themselves as the technologists. Mm-hmm. And the people over in liberal arts or who are in uh, creative writing as, as the non-technology people. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that we, we have to have a comprehensive approach. That, that technology has always been a comprehensive issue. It's getting easier for us to recognize that now mm-hmm. because the innovation has gotten to a point where it affects so many aspects of our lives. Right. But it's always been comprehensive. And if we shy away from participating in and working uh, especially with the companies, with private industry, that are that are the most powerful and influential designers, developers, and purveyors of technology. And we expect to get the kind of world that we want to live in, because I keep going back to that. I, I think ultimately that's what's at stake. Then we have to recognize that's that's impossible. It would be like saying you want the world to have better brooms, but you're never going to have anything to do with the people who actually make brooms because you think they're so bad. <laughs> well, you know, don't be surprised if the brooms never change because you have nothing to do with the people who are producing that. This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.